Well, welcome everybody to our second installment of Delight and Doctrine this time around. Again, we're focusing on what is the church. Last week, Taylor covered the mission of the church. I hope you were able to catch that. If not, again, that's available on our website. If you go to our uh, podcast link and our teaching link or our teaching link and uh, click on there, you'll be able to see it at the top of the list, probably one of the first ones on there. But um, just go on there, look for uh, what is the mission of the church, and you'll be able to catch that. As a reminder also, uh, again, this is the second class in this series. Uh, Trey and Reed will both be teaching, uh, and I don't know, next week, when's the night of worship, Reed? 22nd. The night of worship is 22nd, so next week, Trey's teaching. And then we're going to have a night of worship, and then Reed will teach, and then the week after that, we're going to gather again in this room, not for a teaching lecture style like what this is, but we're going to gather for a question and answer. So what we need all of you to do is, first of all, pay attention. Secondly, as questions come up, as we teach through this series, write them down and then send them to myself, Taylor, Reed, Trey, or call the church office, um, email us. Let us know in per person and make sure that we write it down on the spot or else we'll forget. But give us your questions as we go through it. And then that way, when we meet again on the, no, I think November 12th, no, 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 November 5th, November 5th, um, we'll go through those questions. Hopefully, we'll have collected enough questions that we can just focus on what we've been given and we've had time to prepare. But if not, and you come with questions that evening, we'll do our best to answer them so long as you're kind and gracious to us, please. Um, so tonight, I'm going to be covering uh, church membership, answering the question, who is a member of the church? Who is a member of the church? What is a member of the church supposed to do? What does it mean that we are members? What does it mean like in our relationships with one another? What does it mean with our relationships to the leaders, to the pastors of the church? So church membership, this is important. We want to get it right. We do our best as pastors to, to get it as right as often as we can. We fail. We're not perfect, but we do our best. So with that said, let's ask for the Lord's help in all of this, and let's start by praying. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for just the truth that we have received from it. We pray, God, as we try to reflect on your word and to understand it and understand what it says about this significant topic, God, that you would soften our hearts to its truth. God, open our, our eyes to see what you would have us see and help us to understand so that when we leave this room, God, we are better church members and we serve your church and build up your church so that it would grow in a manner that is healthy and in a manner that is according to your word. And God, through all this effort, we would fulfill your great commission to reach Dothan on, and to the ends of the earth. God, and glorify your name. And we pray this and ask it all in your son's name. Amen. So, uh, if you were here last week, then you'll remember we talked about defining, uh, defining what the mission of the church is, defining what a church is. Uh, and that needs to be our starting point. If we're going to uh, figure out how to construct this house, we need to look at its building plans 
first. So we need to know what a church is and what its mission is before we dive deeper into these other topics, such as uh, membership. One of the things that we notice when we look at the biblical narrative is that God's intention has always been to create a people for himself who would dis- uh, display his glory for all the world to see. We see that from the time that God sets apart a people for himself in the Old Testament with Abraham and then the Israelites. And then we see that again as Christ comes and establishes his church. God has been about the business of setting it apart a people for himself whose purpose was to display his glory for the world to see. And that is the purpose of the church. The church is the means through which God has chosen. The church is the means through which God intends to to fulfill the Great Commission. But what happens when a church or when individuals in a church who claim to be a part of Christ's church fail to live like Scripture commands? Not just fails to share the gospel with the world, but fails to live out the gospel in their daily lives. So turn in your Bibles if you have them or on your phone. If you have it, I'll give you a second. I didn't give you any warning. So take a second. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. You know what? I cheated and I got it on the screen. So if you haven't turned there yet, you can just look up. I forgot about that one. 1 Corinthians 5. I can't read it because this thing. There we go. It is actually reported, Paul writing to the Corinthians, which you probably know about this occasion. The Corinthians were a pretty messed up people. And so Paul wrote to them, he said, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you already are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So what's, what's going on here? A man is found... Not necessarily caught, but a man is sleeping with his father's wife, and the congregation is tolerating it. Paul calls the church to remove this man, to hand him over to Satan, not for the goal of his ultimate destruction, but for his ultimate restoration. The question that comes up for our focus today, for the topic of this study today, the question that we have to ask is, remove him from what? What is Paul 
calling the church in Corinth to remove this man from who has been found in sin? The answer, I think we'll find as we look at other biblical texts and as we study this one ourselves, is church membership. Again, when we read texts like this that are difficult, It's important for us as a church to listen to what Scripture teaches rather than our own ideas or our own preferences. The church represents what is and what is to be in heaven. Uh, Turn to Matthew 16. Never mind, I got it on the screen already. I, have, I thought ahead. I just forgot how well I thought ahead. So, <laughs> Matthew 16. In the first part of this chapter, we find Jesus warning the apostles not to, um, not to trust the teaching of Israel's leaders. We see that back in verses 1 through 12. Israel's leaders, they were self-righteous. And so they missed Jesus. They missed the Messiah Their proud self-reliance blinded them from seeing Jesus for who he really is, the Son of God, the Christ, who they've been waiting for. So Jesus then turns to Peter, and he says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers, Lord, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms, Peter's answer, and then he says in verses 18 and 19, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is the first of two times that Jesus talks about the church in the Gospels. And notice how he connects the church in verse 18 to the keys of the kingdom in heaven in verse 19. The kingdom of God, just here's a This is for you to write down and to remember. I don't think it's in your notes. So write this down. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as we see in the verse here, is God's people in God's place under God's rule. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is God's people, so Old Testament Israel, New Testament the church, in God's place, The earth and the heavens are his under God's rule. And so we are the people of God. And we make up then the kingdom of God. The connection that Jesus is making in all of this is that the church is the kingdom, they are the people that make up God's kingdom. And on earth, the church is meant to 
display what we see in heaven. Meaning, Christ inaugurated his kingdom when he arrived. And when he ascended, he established his church. And until Christ returns, the people of God are going to be broken. They're going to be wandering in the wilderness. They're going to be a people waiting for again their Lord to return who will establish a new age where we will all be together with Christ in His kingdom for eternity. So there's an already not yet aspect of that. Already we make up the people of God. But we have not yet seen the full fruition of that reality and we will not see it until we are in heaven. But while we are on earth, we are to live as citizens of that kingdom, wherever and whenever we are. And specifically, when Jesus talks to Peter, he's interested in a what and in a who. What is a right confession and who is or isn't a true confessor? A confessor is one who proclaims faith in Jesus Christ. I suppose you could confess anything. You could proclaim faith in whatever you want. But Jesus is referring to those who make up his kingdom. So those who take part in that eternal reality are those who today confess Christ. Both with their mouth, they make the right confession, Jesus is Lord of all, and with their life, the way that they live displays that reality. So Jesus exercises that authority of deciding who is making the right confession or what, are, the, are they making the right confession or are they living out the right confession? Jesus, Jesus establishes that authority in this moment with Peter. That's what we see in verse 18 of chapter 16. But then he goes a step further and Jesus gives to Peter and to the apostles the same authority. He says, Peter, you have confessed correctly. I am Lord. I am the Son of God. And I'm going to give to you the keys of the kingdom. And when he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, you can think of what is a key for. It is to lock and to unlock and to open a door. Peter, Jesus is saying to Peter, to you, Peter, and to the apostles, I am giving you the same authority that I have to say you are confessing correctly. You now, you now have that authority to say to those who would then confess me to you. Now, I want to make sure you get this. We'll, we'll come back to it. I don't want to cause any confusion. Whoever is holding these keys... These keys of the kingdom 
has heaven's authority not to make a Christian. I cannot simply say, Taylor, your sins are forgiven. You are a Christian. I don't have that authority. Rather, I am given, we are given as the church, the authority to declare who is a Christian based upon that confession. So we are not making, that. there's a distinction, we're not making believers. When we invite somebody into church membership, they've gone through the process, they've aced the membership class, they've been baptized, given a wonderful testimony before the church, and we invite them into church membership, we are not making them a Christian in that moment. One of the reasons we reiterate when we baptize somebody that these are not magical waters that are suddenly um, I know I'd mess that up. There we go. We are not, this is not magical waters that are suddenly causing a dead person to be alive in these waters. Rather, these waters, these baptismal, baptismal waters symbolize an inward reality that has taken place in this confessor's heart. Now, in Matthew 16, Jesus gives these keys to the apostles and to Peter. And then in Matthew 18, Jesus puts the keys into the hands of the local church. So Matthew 18. See if I, I don't have it. So you have to turn there this time. So Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, then you have gained your brother. Good news. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge, excuse me, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus uses that same phrase again, indicating that these keys which he held in his hands, he gave to the apostles, and then he instructed the apostles to take these keys and give them to my church. Now, in this case, a man has been confronted a couple of times over his sin. He doesn't listen. So then in verse 17, Jesus says, tell it to who? Tell it to the church. Not to a pastor, not to a committee, not to a session or a presbytery, depending on what denominational background you come from. But he says, tell it to the church. The final court of appeal is the church. Congregationally, again, we know this. I guess I should have said this at the beginning, but the church is not a building, right? We are the church. We hold the keys of this kingdom. And when we meet together in business in the other room, it's not a matter of business of how's the uh, carpet looking? Do we need to replace it? It's a matter of business of handling these keys. And that's why the first 
matter that we handle in that meeting is inviting those confessors into the fold because that is who is and who is not a member of the church the most important business that a church can handle. I'm not saying it's the most important thing the church does. I'm just saying in a meeting like that, it is the most important business that we take care of. The local church has heaven's authority to guard the what and the who, to guard that confession. Think of Hebrews 13, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. That is what we're guarding, that that is what the confessors are confessing. And then the who, who is confessing it? Do their lives reflect it? And then again, to be clear, I, just, I want to reiterate this. The church does not have the authority to make a believer. We don't have the right to simply say, your sins are forgiven, but to declare based on your confession of faith and the confession of your life, we believe you are a believer. And so then we have these keys in hand to declare this reality. And we want to look at now how are the, the, the keys that Christ gives to his apostles and then to his church, how are they exercised? How are they used in the church? We bind and we loose. We exercise the keys through two means, through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. Notice in Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus explains uh, this, this key-holding activity here in verses 17 and 18. When he says the word, he says, for, in verse 20, he says, for, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. So what does that mean, to be gathered in his name? Jesus is referring to the church. Jesus is talking about that place where we exercise the kingdoms and where we exercise baptism and the Lord's Supper. Supper. Super. Turn to Matthew 28, 18. Matthew 28, 18. You're all familiar with this verse. Let me make sure I'm... Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The church, uh, because it has the authority of the keys, has the authority to baptize. Is one of the reasons why you might ask, when we baptize, we almost exclusively will baptize in our baptistry, in front of the congregation. No knock on anybody that was baptized somewhere other than a baptistry in front of the church. I was not. I was baptized in a pond. Cut the bottom of my foot on a piece of glass as I went under. <laughs> I'll never forget it. <laughs> but the church has been given the authority to baptize as a means of exercising these keys, of saying, 
That's why we ask the question before we dunk them under the water, are you now confessing that Jesus is Lord of your life for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life? We, we call them in that moment as, if, as in one final opportunity, make the right confession. If not, if, you're not gonna, if you don't believe this, if you're not going to confess it, don't say it. We'll walk you out of the waters. That would be better than confessing falsely. And that's why we take our time. When somebody wants to be baptized, we don't run them up to the baptistry in that moment. We say, wonderful, let's talk about it. Let me understand what it is that you are claiming to believe and make sure that you are believing what is actually proclaimed in the scriptures. The church has the authority and the responsibility to make sure that the confessor is confessing Christ. And so baptism is a symbol of a spiritual reality. We know this. It's a picture of our union with Christ in both his death and his resurrection. But baptism not only symbolizes our union with Christ, we go over this every time we baptize as well, it also uh, is the, the Christian's way of associating himself or herself with God's people. Just as I have been uh, buried and raised with Christ, made visible through baptism, you have been buried and raised with Christ. And as we have done this together, we are uniting together as, an, as a congregation. Baptism is the door, so to speak. You go in the building, but you only go in one time. Baptism takes place once. But the Lord's Supper is different. It is something that we do regularly. And it is the church's way of uh, recognizing both individuals and corporately recognizing sin repenting of that sin, and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That is what we remember through the Lord's Supper. But that's why it is important for us to say, if you have not come into this place through that door, then you don't need to partake of this meal. People ask, why do we, why do we clarify? Not, one, not only that this is a um, that this is a believer's meal, but why do we always clarify that uh, we are that that it needs to happen following believers' baptism? Because it's a family meal that takes place in the house, and there is only one way to identify yourself as a member of that household, and it is through the door. Now we are. Um, there's, you know, I'm not going to get into this. I think Reed is doing worship, so I'm going to let him uh, dive a little bit deeper into that topic. But that is what it means, okay? So baptism and the Lord's suppers, they are ways for the church to exercise these keys. First, through baptism, at the initial confession of faith, we baptize them uh, dead and raised to new life. And then when we partake of the Lord's supper, we remember that reality that we have been buried and raised with Christ and our sins are forgiven. Now, baptism and the Lord's Supper 
are the oath signs by which we, we are taking oaths. We are taking, making promises, making a covenant with one another that we profess Christ and we affirm one another as Christians and members of uh, one another in the church. So, consider this uh, definition of a local church. I don't know if it's in your... I think it's in there. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name. Is this in your notes? Yes, wonderful. So the church is, is fundamentally, it's a gathering, not a building. We know this. To officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. So there's a few things that are coming into greater focus as we look at this. First of all, it is official. Because only the church has been granted the authority of the keys from Jesus Christ. The church has been given this authority from the king himself. We have a responsibility to carry it out faithfully. It's a gathering. But that gathering is further defined with the purpose affirming and overseeing of each other's membership in Christ and His kingdom. So we are affirming one another's confession. Brother, I heard you say something the other day. It was concerning. You, had, you said something like, Jesus is a way to heaven, but not the way to heaven. We talked about that this morning. Taylor covered that. The exclusivity of the gospel. There is one way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If somebody confesses a hope of salvation other than Christ himself, we are commanded by Scripture to confront lovingly, gently, wisely that person over their error. Likewise, if we see a brother or a sister who is maybe proclaiming the true gospel with their lips, but, but they're living out something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, sin, habitual, unrepentant sin in their life, then we have, according to Jesus in Matthew 18, a responsibility, a command as fellow church members to again lovingly, gently, and wisely confront that individual with their sin. First one-on-one, and then one and two or three, or you and the elders, but eventually making its way all the way to the final session, the church. And if that individual no longer is willing to live a life according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the church is called to be obedient to Christ's command and to make that individual to them a, a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, that does not mean shun them and kick them out the door. That is not what it's calling for. 
But it means they are no longer able to take part in that covenant-defining meal, the Lord's Supper. We take part in that meal together to identify first ourselves with this church and then as a church identify those who are sharing in this meal with us. And in so doing, we are effectively removing them officially from church membership. We're not kicking them out the door again. We want them to be here. We want them to sit under the preaching of the Word of God and to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in hopes of, again, this goes back to the reason why I said, Paul, uh, why Paul says we are removing this sinner from our midst in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, remove him from your midst, not for their destruction, but for their restoration. And so through, uh, through those means, we identify who is and who is not a, a church member. Now, uh, who is church membership for? All this talk about keys and binding and loosing, uh, it raises an important question. What is the biblical criteria for getting in? And that's an important question because what we're talking about is more than just fitting in. It's a matter of eternity. So is it like a, a country club where you can simply uh, pay a fee or know the right people to get in? Is it like a military where you just need to be able to do a certain number of push-ups and pull-ups to be able to get in? To answer the question, let's, let's turn our attention back to the Gospel of Matthew. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to flip through a number of different verses. But who in Matthew does Jesus say makes up the heavenly kingdom? Who is a heavenly citizen? Which is to say, who is a member of of his church. He says in Matthew 5 3, Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes. In verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, who receives the kingdom of heaven? Those who are poor in spirit. And then in verse 7, uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then chapter 10, verse 32. Maybe I... Chapter 10, verse 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And then chapter 18, verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So who is Jesus describing here? These are people whom the church is to receive. These are people who are making the right confession, the poor in spirit, those who follow God's will, those who acknowledge Christ, those who humble themselves like little children. 
Christianity, and therefore church membership, is not for the strong. It's not for the prideful. It's not for the accomplished or the mighty. It's not for those who have their act together. We hear that often. Somebody says, I'll, I'm, you know, I've been planning to go to church, but I'm just waiting to get my life together before I go. It's not for those who are determined to follow their own will, to do it their way. You think of the Frank Sinatra song, I Did It My Way, right? They used to be my favorite song. But how arrogant and prideful is that song? It's for those who have tried and failed and realized that they could not. It's for teenagers who had certain moral ideals but then went off to college and they fell in sin. It's for mothers who have tried really hard to be perfect moms but only disappointed themselves. It's for retirees who have reached the end of their careers and accomplished all that they ever set out to accomplish and they looked back and they realized it was all about me and my selfish ambitions and all I have now is nothing. Christianity and therefore church membership is for people who have reached the end of themselves. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 9 verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The heavenly father in his sovereignty and his authority has chosen unbelievably to represent himself on earth, not through mighty, powerful angels, not through majestic, powerful creatures, but he has chosen to represent himself on earth, not through the morally perfect, but with the morally broken. That is, the person who knows that he or she is a sinner and hates that fact, hates it, and then turns from that sin and puts his or her faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of Christianity. We were created for good, but we did bad. Christ lived a humble, meek, and perfect life that we should have lived. He lived that life. And then he died on a cross as a sacrifice to pay the penalty that we deserved for doing bad. And now he calls us, every one of us, who is poor in spirit, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, as Jan reminded us in her prayer, this morning, to turn away from that sin and to follow him 
as our Savior and King. Those who confess that with their mouth and with their life, that is who is invited in. All right. So what if after all this talk about keys of the kingdom and binding and loosing, what if you still have questions about what church membership looks like? I mean, where is church membership really in the Bible? You're going to get a little taste of what we go over in our Connect class. There's no, there is not a one single passage that lays out the church, the New Testament church, your local church, First Baptist Church of Dothan, Alabama, must have on some exclusive official document somewhere a list with every name of every believer and member on it. And you must keep that list tightly and officially. You must vote in new members. You must vote out those who leave and those who are living in unrepentant sin. You won't find one verse that just spells that out. But if you look at the New Testament, you really look at it. One helpful way to answer the question is to read through the New Testament with this question in mind. How does the Bible call Christians to relate within Christ's church? How does the Bible, how does the New Testament call Christians to relate within Christ's local church? And in our Connect class, we cover four commands from different parts of Scripture. The first three are what we call one another commands. If you read Paul's writings, he often will give commands to local bodies of believers, whether they're church in Corinth or Ephesus or Colossae. He'll command them, love one another. He gives these commands that are within the phrasing somewhere mentions one another. So we call them one another commands. Because Paul's writing to local bodies, local churches, individuals who are to instruct local churches, we can take these commands and apply it to ourselves and to this church. And so the first of such command we want to look at is the command to love one another. Love one another. I don't have up here on the screen, so you'll just have to listen this time. But Romans 15.1, well, let's back up. In John, Jesus gives his disciples a new command. What is that command? How will the world recognize them as his disciples? By loving one another. So Jesus gives this command to his disciples. And later in Galatians, Paul writes to the church uh, there and he says to them, you must keep the law, not the law of the Old Testament, arguing against the case of the Judaizers that we must keep the ritual and uh, food laws of the Old Covenant but you must keep the law of Christ. The law of Christ being that we love one another. And Paul 
expounds on that command in Romans chapter 15, verse 1. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. We love one another by bearing with one another. The strong bear with the weak. Not as an obligation, but uh, in, in joy. Now Romans 12, verse 13 through 16. Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We love one another by opening up our doors and inviting others into our homes. Not just in our homes, but in our lives when we encounter one another in the pews. It's not a, it's not a quick hi, hello, goodbye. I'm out the door. I got Mexican food and football games waiting for me. But we invite one another into our lives and open up about the reality of life. It is difficult. It is hard. There are struggles in my life, and I believe there are struggles in yours. How can I pray for you? He goes on in verses 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. How can I celebrate with you? Your daughter got married. Your son gave his life to Christ. Hallelujah. Or weep with those who weep. Your mother is in the hospital and it doesn't look good. Brother, I'm so sorry. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another, Paul says. We seek unity within the body. We don't seek to divide not for our own preferences, not for our own agenda. But over and above what I want are the needs of this body. How can I pray for you? How can I love you? How can I bear this burden with you? That's how we love one another. And then Paul says elsewhere, we're called to encourage one another. I said Paul. I did this this morning. The author of Hebrews. In Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. First he says, in verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. This confession of our hope being the gospel. Let us hold fast to the gospel. Verses 24 and 25, he says, Consider how to stir up one another to love, and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. So there's an issue there. It says not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So there's a problem going on. There are some who are not meeting with the church. They're not gathering. It's literally what the term church means, gathering. They're not gathering with the saints. They're neglecting it. Probably because the believers in this time were facing massive persecution and danger to their lives because of identifying with the church. And so it was a risk to their own health to gather to the church. But the author of Hebrews says, don't neglect it. Maybe it is a risk. Maybe there is some danger in associating yourself with these people. But don't Neglect it. Rather, love one another. Encourage one another by stirring one another up to, to love 
and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. How long, Paul, do we need to encourage one another? I'm getting tired of it. He says, all the more. Encourage one another more and more and more and don't stop and don't get tired of it and do it more often when you feel like not doing it anymore. Do it more until Christ returns. He says, as you see the day, the day when your Lord returns, encourage one another, love one another, stir one another up to love and good works. Don't miss out on the gathering because if you miss out on the gathering, nobody can encourage you, nobody can love you, and you cannot love or encourage others. You might say, I don't need it, I'm good on my own. Well, that's not true, first of all. But secondly, Christ did not save you on an island. He saved you into a body, a universal body, big C, church, that is represented in a local body, little c, church, First Baptist Church of Dothan, Alabama. If you don't want to be a part of it, you want to be somewhere else, you want to go on vacation 40 weeks out of the year and show up mainly just for Easter and Christmas and be satisfied with just keeping your name on a roll, it's not what I've called you to. You can't love one another. You can't encourage one another who you never see, who you never invite into your life. Take it a step further. You spend one hour, one hour out of, these, out of the week with these people who are your brothers and sisters in Christ that you are going to spend eternity with. You have more in common with every single individual in this room have, who has confessed faith in Christ than you do with your unbelieving brother or sister, with your unbelieving mother or father, with your unbelieving son or daughter. Do not neglect these people. And don't be satisfied with just enough. Don't just come one hour. Don't just come two hours if you come to community groups. Good for you. It's twice as much, right? Open up your doors. Take that single person who you see sitting by themselves every Sunday to lunch sun, this coming Sunday. Go grocery shopping for one of our homebound members. Sign up, by the way for delivering meals to homebound members on Wednesday night. We need more people. Sign up for it. Sign up to serve the church, to be at the door. You want to be on the, the welcome team? Let me know. I'll put you on the list. We'll have you at the door. We'll have you at the connect desk. We'll have you in the parking lot, and you'll be the first face everyone sees. And yes, I want guests to feel welcome. And yes, I want guests to know where they go to arrive. But what I want more than that, and what I want, well, say as much as that, is I want every single individual member of this church to know they are specifically loved and prayed for by the pastors, 
by those who hold the door and open the door and welcome them into the parking lot and park their cars for them. We need to be a congregation that does not rely on a select few people to do this. That is what a church member does. Yes, it's what the pastor does. Yes, it's what the deacons do. But it is not exclusive to them. If you want to say it's exclusive, it's exclusive to every member of the church. It's exclusive. You want to think of it like that? It's exclusive to you. It's not a matter of asking the question, Well, is somebody else better fit for this? Said, ask the question, why am I not doing it? Why am I not stepping up? Every, every member, whether you've been a believer for 50 plus years or you're newly saved, Christ has called you to serve and to serve his church and to love one another and to encourage one, encourage one another. Man, I got on a tangent just there. All right. Lastly, he says, uh, last of our one another commands. He says, guard one another, guard one another. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18. I've already covered this text. But again, Jesus is not, and Paul is not instructing the church to practice discipline. This is what this is. It is discipline. We all hate to hear the word excommunication. It puts shivers up our spines, right? But it's biblical. Christ calls his church to practice Discipline. Why? Not to kick out the sinner, never to step foot in these doors again, good riddance, goodbye. But for the hope of their eternal soul. Every step in the process in Matthew 18, even the severe step that Paul takes in 1 Corinthians 5, he doesn't say, hey, go to him individually. And then he doesn't say, hey, go to him with you know, two or three of you. Go talk to him. And he doesn't say, hey, pastors, elders of this church, go talk to that individual. He needs to hear it. He says, church, all of you, remove this man. He gives two reasons, Paul does. First, for the, the, um, in the case of leaven, we're going to remove it because a little leaven leavens a whole lump. For the holiness of the church is what he's saying. He says, remove the sin from, from among you. So it's for the holiness of the church. But then secondly, more importantly in this case, he says to remove them in hope that they would be restored to save their eternal soul. They need to understand the seriousness of their sin. Brother, sister, you've confessed faith in Jesus Christ with your mouth. You've been baptized. I watched you grow up in this church. I love you. But your life does not reflect that confession. And I cannot let you go on believing that you are saved and safe. You are in danger. And I love you too much to let you go on living in it. So we're to guard one another. We guard one another's lives when we see sin in it. We guard one another's mouths when we protect that confession, when we correct false teaching. This is what Paul spends the majority of his letters in the New Testament writing about. 
And then last, this is not a one another command, but you obey your leaders. And I'm just putting this in here for selfish reasons. Not really. I'm putting it in here for an important reason. I hope Trey will expound on it more. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Paul says, the author of Hebrews says, we'll edit that out in the, in the recording. And that. Hebrews 13, 17, Paul says, you know, the author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So church members, you are called to obey your leaders. I went over this this morning, though. We are not a congregationally ruled, or sorry, we are not an pastor ruled or an elder ruled church. If you grew up Church of Christ or Presbyterian or whatever denomination that might be considered elder ruled, where you have a select few group of men who make the final decisions and have all authority in the church, that is not us. We are a congregationally ruled church. That is why we vote on who is and who is not a member. Taylor does not have the authority to make an individual a member. I do not have the authority to make an individual a member. You want to say, uh, is that what we've always done? Yes, that is what the Baptist church has always done. We are congregational. We believe in the authority of the church members. That's why we make membership matter in this church. We want you as a member to understand your responsibility. But at the same time, Christ, Christ uh, appoints to his church men who are to serve as, we see in the New Testament, different titles, but pastors, elders, overseers. Three terms that refer to the same office, the same men. Paul says, the author of Hebrews says, submit to these men as those who have to give an account. So myself, Taylor, Reed, Trey, every former pastor and every future pastor of this church will one day stand before God and give an account for how we shepherded this flock. Those who showed up every Sunday were great community group members, great volunteers, Wonderful encouragers always made us feel good about our sermons, no matter how bad we feel about them afterwards. We're to shepherd them well. And we're to shepherd those who are wandering off. Those who might try to make it a little more difficult. We're going to give an account for how well we shepherded those individuals, just as we are to give an account for those who made life easy for us, if you will. And everyone in between. So the command here to the church, to you as individual members, is try to make it easy for us, please. (laughs) But there's a relationship that we see here. I'm going to end with this because we're well out of time. You can see, I think in your notes, you have this little triangle. It's got pastors, elders, overseers. I think just on there it says elders. I took this from online. That's what the church that created this illustration used. But elders there. You have you individually. And then you have the congregation. So you can think of all of the members of the church. This is how the three are to relate to one another. Pastors and elders to the individual is to offer oversight. 
to the congregation as a whole, we're to equip and to shepherd. We're to lead the ship, if you will. You as individuals, you're to submit to the leaders that Christ has placed in authority over your lives. To the congregation, you're to offer accountability. You see sin in your brother or sister's life. You see sin in my life or Taylor's life. Even you call us out on it because you love us, not because you think you're better than us. Hopefully we'll receive that in a spirit of humility. And then to the congregation. The congregation recognizes the authority of the pastors and elders and overseers as granted to them through Scripture. They recognize them by, again, we're a congregational church. You voted uh, Taylor to be your senior pastor, so you recognize, you submit yourself to that authority. And then, likewise, as you individually hold the congregation accountable, the, the congregation holds you accountable. And we live in this reality of the already not yet where we the church are to look like the kingdom of God in heaven by loving one another, encouraging one another, guarding one another from sin, submitting to one another's authority. We submit not only to our pastors but also to the congregational authority. And we do this until Christ returns. And that those individuals who live that out, that is who is a church member. So I'll end there. I'm going to pray. I'm so sorry I went over. I know there's people just ant, like antsy to get out. So I'm going to pray and then we'll go. Father, we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you for the gift of your church. We thank you that you have in your sovereignty unbelievably to ourselves decided that it was best for your glory to establish your church as the means to display your glory to the world. We pray, God, that we would be about that business. That in deciding who is and who is not a church member, in living out this gospel call within the local church, that God, all of it would be for your glory. Not for our own self-gain or ambition, but God, that we would submit ourselves to your will. God, we pray for the members of this church, everyone who's here and not here, everyone who's been stuck at home for too long, everyone who has been wandering away, everyone who is even the most faithful church member. God, we pray for all of them because they all need you. Lord, we pray you would help us to shed the light of your gospel in their lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.